Effective Living with Reverend Henry Hubert. May you be blessed as you listen. Now, the message. Lord, you I've been teaching a word I titled, With My Hands I'll Plant, I'll Build, I Will Harvest. Because in the year of fruitfulness, God wants you to know how to plant in order to harvest. The season of fruitfulness is also the season of harvest. Because when um, we bear fruits, that fruit must be harvested and then it will become beneficial. Now, we have established the fact that the ground on which God wants you to plant on, we have established that there are many seeds you will have the privilege of sowing in your lifetime. The most important seed you must sow is your life. Because if your life is not planted as a seed, your life will never produce fruits. Nothing can ever become fruitful unless it is first planted. Your life has to be planted. But the the good ground on which your life has to be planted for your life to become fruitful is Jesus Christ, the hands of Jesus. So three things that can help you to plant your life in the hands of Jesus. Plant your life in the hands of Jesus. In, In our backdrop for this year, we see a tree planted by the rivers of water. But this tree, as it were, planted in somebody's hands. Those hands there is the hand of Jesus. Anything put in his hands becomes great. Anything that is put into the hands of Jesus multiplies and becomes great. Three important keys that can help you to plant your life in the hands of Jesus is what we've been looking at this month. The first is make the word of God a standard for your life. The second is put your trust in God. We've looked at the first two, and uh, today... I want to talk about the third. If you must plant your life in the hands of Jesus, you have to be committed to God's house. You have to know how to make the word of God a standard for your life. That is the first one. The second one is you have to know how to trust God. And then the last one is you have to know how to become committed to the house of God. Psalm 92 verse 13. Psalm 92 verse 13 says that those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord. So the Bible requires that people must not just be visitors in the house of God, they must not be tourists in the house of God. They must not be spectators in the house of God. They must not even be special guests in the house of God. They must be planted in the house of the Lord. And the Bible says, when people plant themselves in the house of God, they flourish. Now, what does it mean to flourish? It means to grow in a very impressive way. When they say a crop is flourish, it means that it grows very fast. And we see this always when a particular crop is planted in a very fertile ground. Almost every three days on you go there, you get surprised. Wow, this thing was just this height. The next time you you, you go there, a few days after that, it is this height. To flourish means to grow at a very accelerated pace, accelerated race. That is the benefit of being planted in the house of God. Verse 14. It said, they shall bear fruit in old age. It means that their fruitfulness will never expire. There will be no expiry date to their fruitfulness. They don't come to a time in their life when they say, too late. They have become old school. You know, no more relevant. They have become irrelevant. There are people you meet in life and they tell you he used to be great. He used to be this. He used to be that. Now you cannot see any relevance of his usefulness. But the Bible says that when people are planted in the house of God, they shall flourish. And the second thing is that they will bear fruit even in old age. That means that for those who are not old, they will even bear more fruits. 
they shall bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh. That means never dried, never wither, never suffering um, dryness, never, you know, experiencing any harsh condition. They are always fresh. That means every time you meet them, something new is happening in their life positively. May that be your story. May that be your case. In the name of Jesus, they shall be fresh and flourishing. That means you will never meet them and they tell you about the good old days. Anytime you meet them, they are telling you, come and see what the Lord has done again. God is always doing something new in their lives. And the Bible said, these people are planted. To be planted means to position something. It means to fix something. It means to to situate or to locate an, an, an object at a particular place permanently. That's what it means to plant. Uh, it also means to bury seed on the ground in order for it to germinate and grow. God wants you and I to plant our lives. It means establish your life as God's, in God's house. Establish your life. It means locate yourself in God's house. It means Put yourself, take your life like a seed and fix it in the house of God. It means established to the point of immovability. That means you become unmove, unmovable, unmovable. You know, I, I like 1 Corinthians 15, 58. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It said, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Immovable, immovable. You know, the whole idea of the house of God was first mentioned in the Bible in Genesis 28, verse 16. Genesis 28, verse 16. A certain man was running to a place of uncertainty, not knowing what is going to happen, but this man had a covenant with God, and God wouldn't abandon the people who he has a plan and purpose for. God will never abandon people who are in covenant with him. No matter where they are, the situation they are in, he always has his eyes watching them. And so the Bible said this man had a dream in a place where he thought was an ordinary place, but that place was a place where his grandfather had, you know, worshipped God performed sacrifices there. And the Bible said, God ordered his steps so that by the time the sun was setting, Jacob had reached that particular place where he could sleep and have a dream. And the Bible said, when Jacob woke up from his sleep, he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Then Jacob, verse 17, and he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So the first person to call a place God's house is here, Jacob, because of what he saw. What he saw. And what he saw, Bible said, frightened him. And the Bible said, he, he said, how awesome. Awesome. That means it, it's, 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 it's not as if it's scary, but it is frightening. It's, it's, it's so wonderful, it's so, it's so um, humbling, you know, to see an ordinary place like that, but such an experience of God's presence and glory and power manifesting right there without anybody knowing. And that is exactly the description of how the house of God is like. The reason why people go into God's house and do all manner of Horrible things and, 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 and play all manner of jokes and do all manner of things is because the, the house of God is a place that looks as ordinary as every other place. As ordinary as your house. As ordinary as everything. That is why people can walk into church and steal. And you leave your phone, you, you may not see it again. You leave your money in the bag, you may not see it because... It's as ordinary as every, every place else. But when God begins to open your eyes to see what exists beyond the physical eyes, suddenly your attitude will change. 
suddenly your attitude will change. And that is what happened to Jacob. Jacob called the place the house of God. And then he didn't only say, he said, this is surely the gate of heaven. Why did he call it the gate of heaven? Because he was describing the place as a place where you can have access, direct access to heaven. Direct access to the presence of God. Direct access. It was a portal that gives you access into God's presence. In other words, this idea of the house of God as communicated by Jacob suggests that you can go to such a place and have access to God much, much easier than everywhere else. That is the first time this whole idea of the house of God came into existence. Afterwards, a lot of things have happened in, in the Bible. In the book of Exodus 25, the Bible says that when God called Moses and asked him to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt to Canaan, as they were journeying to the promised land, God gave Moses the commandments and all other laws. And one of the things God told Moses to do was to build him a temporary place of worship. A temporary place of worship. This temporary place of worship is called the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was a temporary place of worship. And the reason why it was a temporary place of worship was because the Israelites were journeying. They were traveling every day. So they get to a place and then they camp. And even though they were traveling and they were not staying at a permanent place, God still wanted to begin to deal with his children with a principle that there is a place that the Israelites need to come in order to worship him. Despite the fact that they were even journeying and traveling, he still wanted them to have a specific place of worship where they would come and worship him. And so the tabernacle was made of tents. The reason why it was made of tents was because they could easily remove it and carry it to the next location until they got into the promised land. So um, in Exodus 25, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. Everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins, dyed red, badger skin, and acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be, to be set in the effort and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So in verse 8, God told Moses, the reason why I want you to command the people to bring offerings to me is I want you to build a sanctuary. Everybody says sanctuary. Yeah, the word sanctuary as stated in Exodus 25 verse 8, is a Hebrew word which means a sacred place. A sacred place. Or a place that is set apart for special use. It also means a holy place. In fact, the word holy actually means set apart. It means it is not for ordinary use. The Hebrew word is mikdash. The word mikdash means a sacred place. Another word is Kodesh. The word Kodesh means the holy place. God said to Moses, build me a holy place that I will dwell among them. In other words, that particular sanctuary was the point of contact by which God will continue to dwell among his children. It tells you that this meeting place is so important, but its absence means God cannot dwell among the people. In other words, the sanctuary was the channel or the medium or the point of contact through which God comes to the people. God comes to the people through the sanctuary. So he wants a place where they could come, when he could have access to them and they will have access to him. So the sanctuary was a meeting place between men and God. And between God and man. So by this commandment, God was giving 
the Israelites an idea of how important the house of God is, the place of worship is. That is a place where things that cannot happen to you in your house will happen. It's a place where things that he cannot do for you elsewhere, he can do it for you. So, you know, when you meet people who say, I know God, I love God, I know how to worship God, I'll never go to church. They don't know the Bible. They don't know the Bible. Because, it, you know, the whole idea of God's house was not a man's idea. It was God's own principle by which he wants to deal with people who follow him. When the Israelites got to the promised land in Canaan, they built a temple unto the Lord. The first person to build a physical building, which we call a temple for God. The first person to do that was Solomon. He was the third king of Israel. The first two kings were so busy fighting, but by the time Solomon had become king, David had conquered all the enemies, and God said to Solomon, build me a temple. The Bible said that Solomon built this temple at a place that is very interesting. In the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1, the Bible said that, now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David, at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Onan the Jebusite. Those of you who were in church last Sunday, we heard during the offering exhortation that David bought a particular parcel of land which was being offered to him free of charge. But David said, um, this is what I'm saying is in 2 Samuel 24, verse 24. The Bible said, David said, no, this place I want to sacrifice to God to avert a curse that was on the land. And the Bible said David bought the parcel of land from a man by the name Onan and then erected an altar there and performed a sacrifice. Now, but this is not only in the very interesting thing about this place. Take me back to 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1. The Bible says that this place was located on a mountain called Mount Moriah. Now, those of you who know the Bible a little, you know that Mount Moriah was the place where Abraham... Um, made an altar to sacrifice Isaac. It was on that mountain that God made a covenant with Abraham and said, by myself I have sworn that in blessing I will bless you, in multiplying I will multiply you. It was on that mountain that Abraham saw a ram caught in the bush and took the ram and sacrificed to God. It was on that mountain that Abraham called God. In fact, Abraham called the place Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh means on the mountain of the Lord, there shall be a provision. In fact, the Hebrew is so complicated. In fact, it, it, if you read the Hebrew of, of Jehovah Jireh, it means, that, it means that provision shall be seen on God's mountain. In, like you will see provision on God's mountain. So even though Abraham was calling on the name of God, he also identified that place as a place of divine provision. Because it was that place that he saw for the first time in his life, a ram caught in the bush. We wouldn't move. Because, you know, people would have said, are we trying to say, now, who's, who was the owner of the ram? <laughs> who was the owner of the ram? Is it possible and somebody took his sheep around those areas, taking care of, his sheep, and one of them was caught in, and then Abraham found it. Now, if you found somebody's sheep lurking about, is it, you know, lawful for you to take it and say you are killing it as a sacrifice? A lot of questions, you know, um, surround that. But, you see, when you know where we are talking about, you know, number one, no shepherd would take his sheep to that place. Yeah, because it's, it's a very hilly place. Now, the second thing is that, I mean... There is no amount of bush that can make a ram unable to move. So the circumstances under which the ram was there spoke to Abraham that God deliberately masterminded the provision of that ram. And what God is providing for you, there's a way you, he makes you know, I did this for you. And so instead of sacrificing Isaac, God had a provision of a ram on that mountain. And the Bible said that that place became a holy place 
for Abraham and his descendants. Now, David ended up buying the same place later by God's own orchestration. And then when it was time for Solomon to build, God spoke to Solomon, go to that place and build the first temple that ever was built. That temple was destroyed um, later by Nebuchadnezzar, if you study the Bible. But even though the temple was destroyed, the foundation of the temple is still there up to now. If you go to Israel, there's a place called the Wailing Wall. Now, the Wailing Wall is the foundation wall. Because um, like if you go to our church site, you, our project site, you'll see that because of flooding and, and, and in that area, we, the, the foundation was raised up. Uh, in our area here, we call it footing. The footing is quite high. But if you go to the Wailing Wall, the foundation for the temple building is taller than my height. I've been there. It's, it's taller than my height. I think it's, it's probably taller than the height of this air condition. It's a very tall foundation. So even though the building itself is destroyed, the foundation wall alone is still a wall. Now, they call it Wailing Wall because during the 1957 war, when the Arabs attacked Israel and the war became very terrible, and the Israelites were losing the war because almost about eight different um, Islamic countries have gathered to wipe out Israel. Some of the Jewish rabbis ran to that wall and they began to pray. Um, and they began to quote Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13, from 12 to 14. And they began to pray to God. And strangely... That cannot be explained up to today. The battle overturned, and Israel won that war. Let me read to you what is here. Is here. He said, "Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer, and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice.' God said to Solomon, "I have chosen this place for myself. In other words, you are in charge in your house." But there's a place that belongs to me also. It's my place. It will be a place of sacrifice. Verse 13. Verse 13. When I shut up heavens and there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Verse 15. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. You see, so God is telling uh, Solomon, every prayer made in this place, my ears are attentive to it. But I'm glad to say that, can we read verse 16? Can we add verse 16? For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. So up till today, the Wailing Wall is, a, is one of the most, I think my opinion is that it is the most outstanding prayer ground I've ever stepped on. It's the only place in the world where prayer is made 24-7. The Jewish rabbis, they have schedules, they operate on shift, they pray on shift. Midnight, 3 a.m., 9 a, 6 a.m., 9 a.m., midday, 3 p.m., 6 p.m., they are there praying, saying things you won't understand, but I believe God understands. Yeah, and it's a place that I, I believe every Christian should visit one day in his lifetime. Somebody say, I'll be there. <laughs> all right, all right. But the good news about all that we just read is that in the New Testament, in the New Testament, it is not only in Israel you need to travel to before you can be in the house of God. In the New Testament, Jesus came and established a new order by which people called by God, children of God, can gather in specific places, worship him, and he will move in their midst. So in the book of Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, very surprisingly, Jesus 
brought about the idea of the church. He said, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The first person to use the word church in the Bible was Jesus. And he called it my church. My church. So the transition from the Old Testament, they call it the house of God. In the New Testament, they called it church. It was Jesus that brought that shift. Because, you know, the coming of Jesus and the death of Jesus brought about a transition in worship in the way people related with God. Number one, in the Old Testament, only the nation of Israel were God's people. Only the nation of Israel had a right to worship God. But in the New Testament, Jesus has come to shed his blood and every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation, every people have a direct access to God, that direct right to worship God. And so the worship of God changed. So if we, if we go to the book of um, John chapter 20, can you give me those scriptures in John chapter 20? No, I think we'll start from verse 16. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. So, you know, before Jesus died, the Israelites still worshipped on the Sabbath, on Saturday, in synagogues. Synagogues were smaller models of the Solomon Temple. Because the Solomon Temple was specially designed according to the vision God gave David. And so for easy worship in various localities, they built smaller places that they called synagogues. And they meet there on Saturdays on the Sabbath to read the, the laws and the prophecies and to worship God. But as soon as Jesus died and rose from the dead, he started doing something different. And I want you to take note. The first thing he did was that Jesus waited until the first day of the week, which was a Sunday. And the disciples had gathered at a place. This place was the same place they did. he had the last, the last supper with his disciples. It was called the upper room. It was a room that belonged to the mother of John Mark, the man who wrote the gospel according to Mark. His mother had a big house, and there was a big hall in, in the house where Jesus met with the disciples anytime they are in Jerusalem. It was their meeting place. It was their place of fellowship. It was the same place they, the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples um, on the day of Pentecost. Um, I'll show you more about this place. It, it was a place of meeting. And the Bible said, because the disciples had become afraid, now, if Jesus had been killed, then you know, as for you, they can do anything with you. So all of them were hiding in that room. Doors closed, windows locked tight. And the Bible said, suddenly Jesus appeared in their midst and said, peace be to you. Yeah, I believe that uh, everyone will be scared first. And then they said, no, 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 let's, let's not be scared. And the Bible said, verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He didn't want them to be afraid. He wanted, he wanted them to know, it, I am the real person who died on the cross. He showed them his hands, where the nails, the nail holes were still there. And he said, you know, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. 21. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. The word peace, there is the Hebrew word shalom. The word shalom means nothing broken, nothing missing. It, it means the entirety of blessing, blessing on all sides, like we heard in today's, um, how do you call it, exhortation. Blessed all around, 100% blessing. No, not blessed in pieces. It, it means prosperity that covers every area of your life. And he said, peace be to you. He said, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. So the first person to say receive, it was Jesus. Verse 23. Verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. We have to talk about this another time. The same Jesus who said, forgive everybody. 
if you don't forgive people, God will not forgive you. He met some people. He said, the day you decide, this one is not for you, by the way. We'll talk about this another time. Verse 24. He said, now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciple therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the, the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So the important thing you see here is that when you are absent from God's house, there are blessings you cannot experience. There is a faith you will never have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You only hear stories, but your, you know, it shows. Why didn't Jesus said, oh, one, two, three, four, five, five. Somebody is absent. Who was absent? They said, Thomas is absent. Then Jesus said, okay, after I've finished with you people, I'll go look for him and reveal myself to him. Jesus didn't go looking for Thomas to reveal himself to him. When you miss a blessing in the house of God, you've missed it. He doesn't, he doesn't trace it to the house, your house to give it to you. Are you with me today? It's a principle in scripture that we need to understand. That is why he talks about planting yourself in the house of God. Verse 26. And after eight days, which means the following Sunday. Yes, eight days means the following Sunday. Now, Jesus did not come back on Monday, on Tuesday, not even on the Sabbath day. He came back on the eighth day as if he heard what Thomas said. Jesus was not there when Thomas was saying, I don't believe you. His disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be to you. Verse 20. Then he said to Thomas, You see, Jesus came the second time because of Thomas, because he wanted to communicate some important truths to the church that there is something important with your presence in God's house, the place that God has chosen to use to meet with his children. So he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, after that day, Jesus told them a lot of things. Let's look at Luke 24, 46. And then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Next verse. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So after revealing himself to the disciples and staying with them for some time, the Bible said after 40 days of his resurrection, he ascended to heaven. But before he ascended, he gave them an instruction. He said, don't leave Jerusalem, all of you. Because, verse 48, he said, you are going to be witnesses that I have truly resurrected. But in order for you to be true witnesses of the resurrection, there is a promise from the Father that you must receive. And I said on Friday that in the whole of the New Testament, there's only one promise. And that promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament, you see many, many, many promises. But in the New Testament, there's only one promise. Is a promise of the Holy Spirit. That is why if you receive the Holy Spirit baptism, you have received the ultimate of all promises. The whole promise in the Bible is fulfilled in your life. He said, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry. The word tarry means wait in the city of Jerusalem until endured with power from on high. Wait. Wait. Everybody say wait. wait. So Jesus said they should not go to their homes or to anywhere until they have received power. Apostle Paul suggested that the people Jesus spoke to before his ascension in this place, there were about 500, according to 1 Corinthians 15. There are about 500, according to 1 Corinthians 15, I think from verse 4. Can you give us 1 Corinthians 15 from verse 4? And that he was buried and that he rose 
Again, the third day, according to the scriptures, verse 5, and that he was seen by Cephas, which means Peter, then by the 12, verse 6. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. That means there were even more than 500. You know, estimation of numbers in church started in Bible days. <laughs> you never meet a pastor who tell you the exact number of people in his church. You meet a pastor, how many people come to church? Oh, we're about 100. That means there were just about 50 people. Over 500 people at once, of whom greater part remain to the present. That means at the time of writing of the scripture. Good. Jesus said, very simple thing. Wait in Jerusalem. You will be endured with power not many days from now. The Bible said that after that day of ascension, just 10 days later, the promise was fulfilled. And let's read the book of Acts chapter 2 and see how that promise was fulfilled. The Bible says that when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Everybody say one place. Yeah, they were all with one accord in one place. But you see, the interesting thing that you see here, maybe the sad thing you see here, was that the number has reduced from over 500 to 120. The number of people in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, that's 120. That means over 380 people left to their homes. No wonder the Bible said, those that are planted in the house of the Lord. More people left. You know, I heard one man of God said, even if Jesus was still on earth today, pastoring a church, people will still be disobedient and people will still be rebellious because it is the nature of human beings. Oh yeah. You don't need to be a special man of God to have everybody in the church believing in you, obeying you and doing what God has asked you to tell people. They will always, yeah, I hope you're also hearing it. Whoever said I should tell them. I'm preaching to you too. They were all with one accord in one place. God fulfilled the promise of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit did not go about looking for all the disciples. From Galilee to Samaria to the various places. Okay, you are among them. Receive the Holy Ghost. You are among them. No. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. The Bible said, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven. As of a rushing mighty wind. Like they could hear the sound. <sighs> like a very strong wind. You know, moving in a particular direction. Straight towards that same house. Belonging to John Mark's mother. Where they normally meet all the time. It was in that same place when Peter was arrested and put in prison in Acts chapter 12. They gathered to pray. Same place of worship. It was their place of worship. And, no, and guess what? The day of Pentecost was a Sunday morning. Yeah, the day of Pentecost was a Sunday. Yeah, it was a Sunday. How do you know? Because the word pen Pentecost is a Hebrew word, which means 50th day. So if you calculate the Passover, the day of the Passover feast, which was a Saturday, up to the celebration of the Feast of Pentecost, it is seven weeks. And seven weeks gives you 49 days. That means that the Pentecost feast was celebrated on the seventh week, the Saturday of the seventh week, because the Israelites don't worship on Sunday. So they have finished the feast on Saturday, which was 49 days, the 50th day, which was a Sunday. There came the sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. My surprise was that the Holy Ghost did not leave anybody out who was in the room. No one person. It didn't matter whether somebody has seen that day, done any bad thing that day. You know, there could have been more righteous people who were not in the building. Never got it. Never got it. There could have been more prayerful people who ran out of the building that day, never got the experience. But every single person in the upper room that day, the Holy Ghost came upon each of them. And the Bible said they began to pray in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In fact, this experience happened at 9 a.m. Sunday morning. And that was the day the New Testament church was born. Now, I want to say that the apostles in the 
early church began to consider Sunday a very, very sacred day of worship for two reasons. I want to say this and then we close. For two reasons. The first reason is because Jesus himself gave evidence to them that there was a shift on the day of worship. He resurrected on Sunday morning. He appeared the first time to them on Sunday morning. Appeared the second time to them Sunday morning. The day, the only promise in the New Testament was to be fulfilled. It came up to them on Sunday morning. So immediately after this, they began to meet every Sunday to have communion and to worship God. Can you give me that scripture in Revelation chapter 1? They call it the lost day. He said, I was in the spirit on the lost day. Revelation 1 verse 10. I was in the spirit on the lost day. Now, what, why did they call it the lost day? Because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. So there's every reason why the church should not worship on Saturdays, but on Sundays. If anybody tell you, if you don't worship on Saturday, you won't go to heaven if the person doesn't know the Bible. Because the Sabbath was part of the law. And Jesus came to set aside the law and to bring grace. <laughs> Do you know that all that you read in Revelation, God gave it to John on Sunday? Yeah, that's what he said. He said, on Sunday, I was in the spirits. Only prophets understand what it means to be in the spirit. Being in the spirit means that you are just here physically, but your eye open and you are somewhere else seeing things. That you, re- you realize that you are no more in the natural on the Lord's day. So there is something special about the Lord's day. And there is something special about the house of God. So when the Bible is saying that we should be planted in the house of God, it's because there are blessings and benefits to receive. If you read the book of, let's close with Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. It said, but you have come to Mount Zion. Everybody say Mount Zion. Now, I want to say that when you go to Israel, somebody say, I'll be there. <laughs> somebody say, I'll be there. Yeah, if, if you go to Israel, the interesting thing you'll find out, the upper room is located on a mountain called Mount Zion. The Solomon's Temple, which is the Wailing Wall, is located on a mountain called what? Mount Moriah. But the upper room is located on a hill. You know, the whole of Jerusalem is a very hilly place. You, you, you go ups and downs. You, it's not a flat land. If you've been to Akosombo before, just like that. But this one is small than that. A lot of hills here and there. The highest of it is uh, uh, Mount Olives, where Jesus ascended. The upper room, which is still an awesome place, I was there, still an awesome place, despite a lot of things have happened there, still an awesome place. It's located on a mount called Mount Zion. Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, and then he began to speak about the church, and this is what he said. He said, but, you see, anytime the Bible uses the word but, it's trying to suggest a contrast. It's trying to introduce a contrast. And the reason why I said, but you have come to Mount Zion is because in the Old Testament, worship was ascribed to that mount called Mount Moriah. That's where Solomon's temple was built. But you see, because there is a shift in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul said, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. To an innumerable company of angels. That means that when you enter church, you have entered an arena where the amount of angels present, you cannot number it. You cannot count them. Every place where children of God truly meet, God is there. And because God is there, his angels are available in innumerable quantities. Innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and what? And church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. To God, the judge of all. To the spirits of just men made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So in the house of God, the blood is always speaking. And the, the blood never speaks curses. It speaks blessings. Yeah, so you come in with a curse, the blood speaks a reversal of the curse. He said the blood of sprinkling speaks better things than the blood of... The blood of Abel was calling for judgment, but the blood of Jesus was calling out to heaven for blessing over the children of God. Listen, the basis for which God blesses you is because of the blood 
of Jesus that was shed. It's not because of your perfection. But that is how you can walk in anyhow and expect all you need to be blessed in the house of God. Show up and be a child of God. Show up and be what? A child of God. The blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Now, every time children of God come to God's house, whether there was a prayer over your life or not, whether there was a prophecy over your life or not, whether there was a miracle service or not, the fact that it is church, children of God have gathered to worship God, to hear his word, to be blessed by him. They never go back home the same. They never go back home the same. Because it is God's own command that this is the means by which he can dwell among his people. Every time you come into God's house, you receive of, of his presence. You receive of his blessing. You receive of his grace. Things happen in your life you cannot see. Nobody can see angels unless God opens your eyes to see. No. Nobody can see everything happening. But a lot happening in our lives. It doesn't require prayer. It requires your presence and your faith. That, you know, your presence and your faith. Your presence and your faith. That I am in God's house. I am not in my house. And I came to meet with God, not with any human being. And so God must do something new in my life. If you come to church with that attitude every week, every week, you keep receiving and receiving. There is, you know, nothing that can be compared to what you receive in God's house. Nothing in the world can be compared to it. No amount of money in the bank can be compared to what we receive in the house of God. No amount of riches anywhere, in any, on any treasure, in anywhere. The things we receive, from God. Each week when we come into his house, nothing can be compared to it. So the devil knows what you stand to gain going to church. That is why he will fight every way to make sure you don't go to church. Anything that makes you not go to church is the devil. Let me say that again as we close. Anything that makes you not to go to church is the devil. Why? He knows once you didn't show up in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Ghost will never come upon your life. He knows. You know, if you met any of those guys who was not there, among the over 500 people, you know they would tell you good reasons why they, they, they left. Maybe somebody, somebody had a call. Thank God there was no phone then, but somebody had a call. Your mother is sick. So tell Peter, please, I want to check on my mother and come back. Never knew that the Holy Ghost was coming that day. Because the day your blessing will come, you'll never know. Yeah, the day your blessing will come, you never know. Yeah, somebody will... Somebody will somebody, different reasons... I don't think that people wanted to willfully disobey Jesus in command. There are things that happened. <laughs> but that is the devil's own subtle way to keep you away from your blessing. And the temptation to abstain from church, it, it comes more when you, are due, when you are in your due season of blessing. When something great is coming for you, that is when the temptation to be absent is greater. The Bible said, those that are planted, listen, never think you are doing anybody a favor when you come to church. Never think you are doing anybody a favor. And never let anybody offend you enough to make you not come to church. Because that person has become the stumbling block to your blessing. But you can choose to decide, nobody will hinder my blessing. I've waited long for this blessing. I've waited long enough. I've served God long enough for this blessing. I'm not going to let somebody annoy me. And for God's sake, if somebody annoy you, deal with, deal with it another way. But to say I won't go to church... It's very unfortunate. It means you don't even have a clue what you are doing. You don't even know what you are doing because there are blessings to get, which we cannot get it in our home. Listen, there's a place for praying in your house. There's a place for praying even at work. There's a place for praying in your car. But there's also a place for receiving blessing in God's house. I have come to realize that most of the prayers we pray everywhere we find ourselves, the answers to the prayers, we get it when we come to church. Yeah, and when your attitude is right, when your heart is right, when you are open to receive, you come by faith. God, I'm here again. You know what I need. You know where I'm going. You know my situation. You know that nobody else can make the difference in my life except you. That's why I came. I didn't come because of anybody. Anybody can do anything to me. They can say anything to me, but I'm here because I need you. And this is where you want me to worship, so I've come. They can insult me, but I'll come. Because I know when you are done with me, Whoever used to insult me, they will begin to testify about the goodness of God in my life. Yeah. You need to come to church with the attitude to meet God. Look at what God told Solomon. He said, my eyes 
are watching over this place, my ears are open to the prayer that we made here. All the time. God's house. There's something about the house of God. He said, those that are planted in the house of God shall flourish. I pray over your life that everything about you will begin to accelerate. In the name of Jesus. Everything about your life. Your marriage, your business, your career, your finances. Your whole life will begin to accelerate. In the name of Jesus. Every stagnation in your life, I command it to be destroyed. In the name of Jesus. Approve by your life. He said, those that are planted in the house of God shall flourish in the course of our God. They shall bear fruit in old age. I declare that no time in your life will be late time. In the name of Jesus, I declare that your prosperity will know no expiry. In the name of Jesus, I declare that every time in your life is good time. In the name of Jesus, I declare that even at old age, you will still be testifying of the goodness of God. In the name of Jesus, I declare you will know no dryness. Your leaves will never wither. Everything about you will never dry. Because God's blessing and God's glory will be upon your life. God's grace and presence will be upon you. And you will see the goodness of God all the days of your life. In the name of Jesus. I pray over your life that a day is coming. People who knew you before, they will say we can see. That your God that you serve, every week, this church you are going, it has changed your life. It has made your life better. It has made your life greater. In the name of Jesus. May that be your story in Jesus' name. Hope you've been blessed by today's message. You can contact Reverend Hubert on 030-340-7970 or 024-33-11201. Remain blessed.